0: Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Shannon Mustafer, and I am the author of Tiki Modern Tropical Cocktails. When I'm not working on writing and developing cocktails, I am the spiritual advisor, aka the Director of Gladys Caribbean, which is a rum-focused bar in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And I also work as a consultant and educator on the, the spirit of topics and cocktails.
1: This is the first cocktail recipe book written by a working african American bartender and released by a major publisher in more than a hundred years. When you decided to write this book, were you aware of that statistic? Yeah, I was and um just a little background i um
0: I'm a big history buff always have been and I want to say maybe a decade ago, I became aware of a book called The Ideal Bartender by Tom Bullock, who published in 1919 and worked at the Pendennis Club in uh, St. Louis, Kentucky. He was the first and the last to publish this book, uh, you know, an African American bartender to publish. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of bar books floating around, but that one I just didn't. I wasn't hearing of it and my peers weren't reading it. And I just thought it was fascinating that it was like this little nugget of history. And when I decided to write my book, it was five years ago. And I didn't know, you know, when it was going to be published based on the negotiations I was going through with my publisher, Rizzoli. And so for it to come out in 2019, 100 years after Mr. Bullock's uh, publication, just feels like um, there was something about it that was meant to be.
1: So I'm probably the only person in the world, but I never knew that Tiki was a huge category of cocktails. For some reason, I thought Tiki was like a vibe or a mindset. Talk a little bit about that.
0: So it's all of those. And, you know, in regards to Tiki being a a cocktail category, it's, it's helpful to keep in mind that when Tiki came about in the late, 30s. I mean, the first Tiki Bar was uh, a spinoff of Hanky Dinks, and that became uh, Don the Beachcomber. Now, Don the Beachcomber, his name was Ernest Gant, was a kind of world traveler, rum aficionado, and uh, came up with this idea of creating an escapist experience in his restaurant because this is like at the end of the Great Depression and people were looking for some relief from the day to day. And the type of cocktails he came up with differed from every other in that uh, you could blend a couple different spirits in one cocktail and that had never been done before. And you could also blend a few different juices as opposed to most recipes that would have one or two at the most and, you know, various sweeteners and, and things of that nature. So, you know, those... Features of a cocktail you're not seeing in other styles of cocktail. And that's uh, the, the recipes are kind of like the, the core of what makes it different. And then there's other elements like the attention to vessels and presentation and, you know, things like fire and orchids and, you know, all this craziness that just not, you're not seeing it in other styles of cocktail. So from, uh, I would say, a structural standpoint where the recipes are concerned, there are some clear differentiations. And then, of course, in the presentation, you know, you don't see that outside of tiki.
1: Last week, Grub Street mentioned you, saying you're a central figure in the tiki renaissance in New York City. It's all about the appearances and element of surprise. Do you think this is a misunderstood tradition or a forgotten tradition or both? I don't think it's as misunderstood as it was uh, When I got my
0: start like five years ago, and, you know, I have to qualify in that on the West Coast, where Tiki originated, it never fully disappeared. Right. There was a moment where there was only a few bars that still had the authentic recipes. And the reason for that was there was secrecy around those recipes and they were coded because the restaurant's. And the bars that served tiki in the 40s were very popular. And the information regarding those products was considered proprietary. It'd be like, uh, think of uh, the recipe or the formula for Coca-Cola. That's proprietary, right? So when the people that created those recipes and and worked in those restaurants retired, they didn't necessarily share the knowledge. And so the knowledge began to, to die off. And then add to that, you know, in the late 60s and 70s, American mixology in general was on the wane, as uh, you know, it was associated with a generation. It was a little bit older, and you know, younger kids, hippies, so to speak, weren't interested in drinking cocktails like their parents did. Like they, you know, preferred recreational experiences. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, from the seventies to the nineties, there was no information, really. You know, he had tiki tea and. California and Los Angeles and Tonga Hut remained open and there were other places. But outside of a handful of bars, people didn't really know the recipes anymore. And the few that did, they weren't, you know, talking about it or giving out those recipes because that was just a culture to keep them under lock and key. When Jeff Beach Bumberry began writing his books about 15, you know, 20 odd years ago. He did the most extensive research in the Tiki, and you know went to all those bars and looked for the rum bottles and scoured you know any document he could find, and was able to kind of reverse engineer and figure out what these drinks actually were and so as his books became you know more popular and people were more aware of what he was doing, then you know Tiki started to make a comeback, and it it wasn't just reduced to, "Oh, it's a sweet." Tropical drink with an umbrella in it. Like people begin to to see the workings and the mechanics of the style of cocktail and, and to understand and appreciate the level of craft that goes into taking eight or ten ingredients and balancing it in a cocktail. So now, you know, the cat's out of the bag, right? So we have the Jeff Beach Bum Berry books, we have Smuggler's Cove, which, you know, does an excellent job of talking about Not only the the history of Tiki and showing us those recipes, as well as, um, you know, Martin Kate's newer recipes, but the the information is out there now. So maybe there are people that still misunderstand it, but uh, it it just doesn't have to be that way anymore. Whereas 20 years ago, uh, yeah, there just was scant means to educate yourself about it. Give us a short history of rum. Yeah, sure. So rum is a a byproduct of the sugar industry. When European powers began to colonize the Americas, you know, the top priority was to find a a cash crop or, you know, some other resource that would um, provide a a large um, stream of revenue, big stream of revenue. So, you know, initially the thought was gold. And that didn't really work out. Um, and there was experimentation with various things, you know, rice and and cotton. But, you know, sugar was the one, especially in the Caribbean, that had the highest yield. And just for some context, the, the kind of revenue that was coming out of just Barbados or Jamaica alone by uh, the late 19th century was uh, kind of on par with oil boom or the gold rush or, you know, what took place in Silicon Valley more recently, uh, there never been a moment in the history of the world where there was such a big shift in the economy. And so, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, rum is not just, you know, a a style or a category of spirit that came about because that's what someone wanted to make. And they, they had this idea in mind of, you know a flavor profile and something they want to craft. Uh, it's a byproduct and another way to add revenue to a sugar plantation, um, their their operation. So for those who are less familiar, in order to produce rum, you you need molasses or you could use fresh cane juice, but um, rum as we know it in the Caribbean came about when planters were looking for a way to utilize the molasses, which was you know, regarded as a waste product. They discovered that you could ferment it and then distill it. And, you know, this began in earnest around, uh, you know, 1705. You know, prior to that, like in the earlier uh, part of the 17th century, there was a little bit of rum production on islands, but it was basically moonshine. It wasn't packaged. It wasn't bottled. People didn't regard it as a, a spirit category and the way that we look at spirits today, it was just, hey, this is what we have to drink, you know, in terms of alcohol, because we can't make beer here. It's too expensive to bring over wine. In fact, the wine doesn't really travel well in the heat. So this all began to change, and and Rome, you know, started moving towards how we think of it in a modern sense in uh, 1650, when Jamaica was taken by the British. The British adopted rum as the liquid that they, they would give out in their daily ration, which became a, a form of payment in addition to, you know, a supplement to, you know, the really poor diet that the sailors had on board. And by 1750, the Navy had grown to, to such an extent that they could no longer source the rums themselves from the islands, but they hired an outside firm called Edie and Mann. And This firm would source the liquids from various islands and then take them over to London. They created a proprietary blend and they would age it there. Meanwhile, for those of you who don't know, you know, brands the way we think of them today, they didn't exist back then. So a distiller didn't have a face or a label. They didn't make liquid and put it in a bottle and sell it. They make liquid and sell it to brokers and the brokers would create the brands and, and sell the products. So at this time, there was a robust business around that in scotch and port and sherry categories in London. And uh, these merchants caught on to the rum and they realized that it was on par with single malt scotch, you know, especially the rums in Jamaica, which are highly prized because they had, really special aroma and heavy body due to, the, you know, their production processes. So, you know, by 1820s, this is when you start to see rum appear as a commercial product in Europe. And to this day in the Netherlands and in Germany, the preference for rum skews towards Jamaican styles that haven't differed too much from that time. By, you know, 1860s, then you start to see Rum become a big global business through brands like Bacardi. And where we are today is, you know, we are getting back to looking at the earliest styles of production of rum. And we want what we consider to be more authentic expressions that haven't had sugar added and, you know, are made on stills or in facilities that have been in operation for 200 or 300 years. And uh, it's a really great moment for the category Especially where it comes to, where where Tiki is concerned, we can make the recipes the way they were intended. And there was a moment, you know, in the 70s through the early 90s where the rums that were in the original recipes were not available in the U.S., you know, so you could attempt to make the drinks, but you were not really going to really hit it. So
1: now we can make those drinks again. In your opinion, what's a good rum to start off with if you're not familiar with rum? Well, here's the thing. Rum is a huge category. You can make it in over 90 countries. I uh,
0: I compare it to wine, right? In that, let's say well, you look at gin or whiskey. Sure, there are some variations in different brands and styles, but it's not such a huge spectrum of rum. Like you can get something that's like really light and dry and clean, or you can get kind of really fruity or earthy and funky or, you know, on the sweeter side, depending on how it's produced. So to answer that question, I say you have to start with at least five. Because if you are trying to pick out a starter, there are so many places to start. And if you, you know, take one bottle or, or one style, you're you're not, Yeah, it just, it won't, it doesn't really capture what rum is about. And so with that in mind, I would suggest... Picking up a spectrum of rums, right? So, uh, on one hand, you want to start with, like, say, a, a lighter rum, and for that, I would suggest rum Barbancourt Blanc from Haiti. It's made from fresh pressed juice, has a little bit of a delicate grassiness and floral element to it, and you can sip it neat. You can put it in cocktails. It's it's really easy to work with and to enjoy. Um, from there, I would suggest picking up a, a bottle of an unaged, overproof English style rum and that would most likely be a Jamaican rum. So that could be rum fire or Ray and Nephew. If you're lucky enough to go to Grenada, I really love the river of Saint Antoine. And you know what that bottle's gonna do for you is you're not necessarily going to drink it by itself, but, you know, if you want to have more intensity, then you'll you'll need a rum like that. Um, in terms of something that's just more like everyday drinking rum, cocktail or otherwise, I would suggest picking up a Barbadian rum or a Bahian style rum because those strike a nice balance between being kind of fuller bodied and rich, but also really clean and smooth and elegant and super easy. I mean, the, the drinking cultures in the islands differ from island to island and that's reflected in the styles. And then Barbados, you know, they have this uh, this pastime called liming which means that you gather with your friends at a little shack called a rum shop and you sip rum all day. You know, maybe you use mixers, but you know, for them it's not, you know, rum isn't cocktailing. Rum is just spending time with friends, right? And then from there, I would suggest you would want to pick up a a rum agricole from Martinique or, you know, one of the former French territories. And those are really cool. They're made from fresh cane juice, like the core I mentioned, but their um, standards of production, they have a DLC around it. And so they're very particular about what you're going to taste in the glass because they want to highlight and emphasize the terroir of uh, you know, their respective geographic areas. And there's also a lot of influence from uh, Armagnac and Cognac production there. And so with the agricoles, you get to see a really high level of production and craft that you don't typically associate with rums, but I think, you know, trying those will shift your perception around what you think rum is in a positive way. And lastly, um, you know, some people prefer like, you know, what they would call like a smoother, rounder, richer um, type of spirit. Like I find that people that prefer whiskey have a tendency to enjoy um, Spanish style rums, which, you know, undergo more time in the barrel because the the Spanish approach is more influenced by wine and sherry where the base liquid is is not what's emphasized but what's emphasized is the barrel regimen and the
1: the house style and the skill
0: of the blender that's that's what they want you to taste in the end
1: yeah and i read in the book like for example jamaican rums have kind of grassy notes and that's something you just I I wouldn't even think about with rum. I mean, that's why I love it. Um, Prior to opening Gladys and
0: working on that program five years ago, I was in the pre-prohibition era cocktails and gin and whiskey and all that stuff and I I still enjoy it on occasion. But if, you know, God came to me and told me that from here on out I would be confined to only drinking one spirit category, I'd happily choose rum because there's one for everybody and for every mood or hour or what have you. Like, if I want something that um, is really dry and light and crisp, I can find it in the rum category. If I want something that's you know, big and bold and chewy or even smoky, I can find that in rum as well. But if I just had gin, for instance, the,
1: the spectrum of options is is limited. In Tiki, Chapter 1 kicks off with foundational cocktails. What are those? So where rum is concerned
0: there's a what we call the holy trinity which is rum sugar and lime and they just work really well together and uh, the earliest rum drinks you know the the navy grog you know that's rum sugar and lime the capriña you know it's it's made with cachaca so it's not technically rum but that's the cachaca sugar and lime the same is true for the dakiri, which is rum sugar and lime and so In those foundational drinks, we walk through those cocktails so that you can taste the different styles of rum and get a sense for how those rums behave. But, you know, the underlying elements are more or less the same. Um, And also, those drinks are a base template for other cocktails that follow.
1: And so, you know, the bulk of tiki drinks have those three elements and then build from there. There's a technique in the book called fat-washing spirits. What does that mean? It's an infusion. It was uh, pioneered by Don Lee,
0: who is a a partner in existing conditions currently and got his start at PDT. And so with fat-washing, you take an oil. It could be derived from an animal, like Don Lee's was uh, smoked bacon fat. I I I do a lot of vegan fat washes, so I I love coconut oil. And essentially, you kind of, I I guess, like steep or infuse the liquid with the oil, you know, over a twelve-hour period at, at room temperature, and then you freeze it so that the the solids separate. They they come to the top. You skim it off. You strain it. And what happens is that the liquid is now, um, it has those fat molecules in it, so it, it takes on a different texture and a creamier mouthfeel. And you know, milk punches utilize the same principle, they're very labor intensive. It, it requires multiple steps, and a number of ingredients, and a couple days to achieve that result. So, yeah, milk punches which were popular in the 18th century, have made a little bit of a comeback in in the modern bar, is where that idea is derived. But, you know, fat washing with um, oils is much faster and more consistent.
1: You created a cocktail inspired by a reggae song. Tell us about that. It's one of my favorite cocktails, actually. It's called uh,
0: the Kingston Sound System. I was approached by by Punch Magazine to pick a reggae song and, and make a, a cocktail. And I really love Skylarking by Horace Mann. It's a you know really chill, laid back, kind of lazy day kind of song. And I was like, okay, so there's a bird reference here. I love the jungle bird. Um, I'm going to come up with a you know, unusual twist on it. And so the idea was kind of like a white Negroni. I wanted to make a white jungle bird. So for those of you who are not familiar with the cocktail, uh, the jungle bird has a, a aged Jamaican rum. It has Campari. Lime and pineapple. And so I kind of looked at each of those elements and went on the other end of the spectrum. So rather than aged Jamaica rum, I used an unaged, higher proof Jamaica rum. It's called Rum Fire. Uh, instead of Campari, I used a gentian liqueur called Suze. I love that stuff. It's um, the consumer right now, the American public is not like too hip to it, but I think it's wonderful. Uh, I use it. Kind of in a way, a lot of people have used St. Germain in the past with elderflower liqueur, but way too sweet for my taste. I wanted something drier, and uh, that that stands in for the Campari. Rather than uh, pineapple, I wanted to, again, reference Jamaica, so I used Soursop. Soursop is a large fruit about the size of a, a big cantaloupe, and it has like little prickles on it, and kind of think of it as like a prickly pear. And uh, it has a really wonderful, delicate floral aroma in the nose. It's, it's, it's delightful for those of who have not tried it. And then, again, not very sweet. Kind of tastes like a uh, cross between a pear and an apple, but it has a really clean, dry finish on it. There's really nothing else like it. And then, of course, there's a lime still. So the result is a drink that follows the Jungle Bird template but takes it in a kind of drier, more herbaceous direction.
1: Now, do you think we can find these ingredients in our local grocery store, liquor store, slash Whole Foods? So it depends on where you live. Now,
0: soursop, you'll find it in Caribbean stores or Asian stores. Um, if you can't find the juice, you can usually find it as a frozen concentrate. So that would be Goya or Le Fay. And then uh, where Sue's concerned, yeah, I mean, if you live in an area where you can uh, you get to a
1: decent liquor store that has craft products, you'll find it. As a bartender, what's the most annoying request you get the most? I don't. Really? <laughs> I love bartending. So nothing. Yeah,
0: like some people are like, oh my God, you're ordering a mojito now. It's busy. Like for me, I'm there to serve a guest and I'm delighted to do it. You're there to get what you want, and that's why I'm there, to give you what you want, like case in point. I was doing a pop-up, and it was Tiki drinks, and someone wanted a martini, and I was so excited because she was getting what she wanted. And I
1: made her, you know, what I hope was a really good martini. I really enjoyed it, and so did she. There are more than 60 beautiful color photographs in this book. You call Tiki a theater for the senses, and you get such a good feel for that with no Fex's photos. Tell us about your friendship with him. It's a beautiful one.
0: <laughs> uh, We've met through a mutual friend, Nicole Taylor. She's the author of the Up South uh, cookbook. She's amazing. And, oh God, I want to be her when I grow up. Me too. I, I met her a decade ago and she's just so dynamic and has forged her own path. And, you know, she's totally Nicole and just, uh, I don't know. I can't go on enough about her. So I had a birthday party and she invited him to tag along and she predicted that we would, quote unquote, ride off into the sunset together. (laughs) 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 You know, we hit it off that night and we're chatting and, you know, he approached me shortly thereafter about doing some test shoots at Gladys because you know, he, he shoots a lot of food and he wanted to add some liquor and cocktail content to his book. And the shoots went really well. I, I'd worked in the photo industry for the first five years of of living in New York as a a styling and a props assistant. And so I, I kind of knew procedures of like how a shoot would go and it was really smooth and the images were beautiful. And shortly after that, he suggested
1: that, uh, we do this book with Rizzoli. I I don't know how long this book took you, but there is a full color photo with every cocktail in this book. I can't even imagine the work that went into that.
0: Well, I mean, had I known how much work was going to go into it, I don't know if I would have agreed to do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just looking at it, I just think, wow, that's a lot of work, (laughs) but it's gorgeous.
0: I mean, to be fair, um, I believe that 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 work, right, is not just what I did in, in the two years that I was writing and producing the book, but in the years prior that I spent uh, studying visual art and practicing as an artist, I, I I went to RISD, studied painting and art history. And um, I mean, I started drawing when I was five. I was always like making things. And so the book was really exciting in that not only was I able to share my recipes and, you know, more importantly, my approach to flavors and ingredients, but also could indulge that part of me that wanted to create images. And that was the intention behind the photography in the book. Now, you look at a lot of cocktail photography and it kind of follows a a formula. It's like, okay, so here's a drink on a bar or against some kind of backdrop or what have you. And it's, that's pretty much it. Um, Because we're working in Tiki, we want to go beyond that and create vignettes that would um, evoke a story.
1: Well, you did it. And it, it feels like it's a culmination of your fashion background and your mixology background. And like, this is all of that in one book.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, when I, when I, Closed my studio shortly before moving to New York 12 years ago. I had, you know, a lot of friends around me who were dismayed because they're like, oh my, you're so good. Why are you doing this? And I had various reasons. I just, I didn't think that, you know, what I refer to as the art industry was for me. You know, one of my biggest reservations around it was the accessibility of that work and the class issues around it. Right. So, Where do most people go to see art? They go to galleries, they go to museums, and museums are wonderful institutions, but there are a lot of people that can't afford to go to a museum, or culturally it's just not an inviting place for certain individuals. And when you go deeper than that when it's time to buy artwork, right? That's, again, confined to a class of people, and taken further, when a collector acquires work doesn't necessarily um, get seen. You know, I, I think the statistic is that seventy to eighty percent of all the artwork in the world is in storage. And so I'm like, ah, oh, this idea of like making this thing for a select few, that's probably just gonna sit in a dark room. I just didn't that's not where I wanted to put my energy and that's not how I want to share what I had to say with the world. So with that being said, being able to make a cocktail book where my creativity could be there. And it was very accessible to people. I mean, a cocktail was like 10 or 15 bucks.
1: Most people can do that every once in a while. It was really gratifying. Now to my segment called My Last Meal. What would you have for your last supper? And what cocktail would you have with it? I'm a pretty simple person.
0: <laughs> um,
1: I would have ostrich steak. That, that's simple. <laughs> I'm like. I thought you were gonna be like. I just have a taco. <laughs> you say ostrich steak. <laughs> That's so interesting.
0: It's so delicious. You ever had it?
1: No. It changed
0: your life. Okay. Where do you okay. get that? Okay, so I had it in South Africa, and I think that if you live in Africa or certain parts of the world, I mean, I think you can get ostrich here. But the whole point is, in South Africa. It's not a big deal. Like, that's the meat that they have, right? Like, we have cows. They have ostrich. Um It's just, it's like a steak, but the texture, I don't know. I can't even tell you why it was so good. But um, I would
1: do that and pair it with a, a nice glass of wine. Not rum? No. <laughs> wow. What kind of wine? <laughs> You're just throwing me off today. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of wine? I mean,
0: uh, you know, probably like a zen or... Nah, that's too sweet. You know, something kind of dusty, maybe a languedoc. I I used to work in wine and I, I still enjoy it. But yeah, I mean, rum's great, but I just don't know if it would go that good with the steak.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where can we find you on the web, social media, and in Brooklyn? My website, Shannon dot
0: shannonmustipher It's not a dot. That's my my email. <laughs> um, on Instagram, same thing. Just shannonmustipher. I don't I don't have an alias. Don't don't have. I'm like no no. It's like I want you to find me. It's not like well what's her handle. So just my first and
1: last name. Put in Google, you'll you'll find me. And it's M U S T I P H E R. For everyone out there. And I also want to remind everyone that we're going to be doing a free live Tiki Talk and book signing at Lizzie Young Bookseller in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn on Thursday, May 30th. So look for more information on my Instagram and Shannon's and we hope to see you there. And thank you so much, Shannon, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast.
0: Susie, it was
1: a pleasure. Thank you for taking the
0: time, and I I look forward to seeing you next Thursday. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at cookerybythebook and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book Podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.